0: Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast, powered by Vidrio Financial. Vidrio Financial is proud to support the Thematic Investors Podcast with host, Kieran Cavana. Vidrio helps allocators harness the investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com.
1: Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Cavana. CIO of Old Farm Partners. Our goal is to bring you great investors and themes they are working on. Some of them are under the radar and we think they're experts in their disciplines. This podcast series is sponsored by Vidrio Financial. For this episode, I'm incredibly honored to welcome Darren Heitman and Chris Gillespie of Azarius Capital Management. Azarius is based in outside Philadelphia and has a long history of investing in small capitalization stocks. They will at times latch onto a big, broad theme and they have one today, and that is uranium and nuclear power. Welcome, Darren and Chris.
2: Hey, thanks, Karen. Glad to be here. Morning, Karen. Morning.
1: Well, great guys. I, you know, maybe we could kick right off with a little bit about your backgrounds and yourselves, and how your investment process gets you into big ideas like uranium.
2: Uh sure. Be happy to do that. I'll start, Chris, and then uh, turn it over to you. Um, I've always been a uh, value investor at boutique value uh, institutional firms and in 2014 we decided to launch Zarius with a focus on companies and particularly small caps that were poised for industry or poised for fundamental earnings recoveries and that, um, that's really the crux of our flagship product and Chris and I worked together uh, several years ago between 2000-2005 at a firm called Schneider Capital Management and I bring that up because we did a lot of really good work in industries that were poised for cyclical recoveries. And so that's a big part of our DNA at Azarius. still 20 plus years later. And so that focus on companies and industries at cyclical troughs led us to uranium. So that's, uh, that's my quick background in, in Uh Chris, do you want to provide your background?
3: Sure, Darren. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh- Darren and I worked together from 2000 to 2005 at uh, Schneider Capital Management, which was a boutique value investment firm that, like Darren said, we did a lot of work on commodity and industry recoveries. And um, so we began working together shortly after Azarius was formed in 2015 here at Azarius. And, uh, you know, as we were looking for different ideas and themes, uranium was one that came up. And so that's how we we uh, started down this path towards becoming uranium investors.
1: Yeah. It's a path that feels like a religion sometimes, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I think uranium, it's very interesting and it's a little more mainstream than when we first spoke about this two years ago, but maybe you guys could walk us through where we are on uranium and nuclear power. I know it's a complex issue and there are a lot of things going on, but why, maybe through the lens of why you think it's such a great multi-year theme right now?
2: Well, I'll start again, if you don't mind, Chris. Um, We got excited about uranium initially because the price of the commodity, uranium, was below the cost of production. And for us, that's a big waving green flag to do more work. And then it got better from that point because as part of our initial look at the industry, And from a supply and demand standpoint, we learned that the current annual supply back in current at the time was like 2017, 18, uh, was below the consumption level. So that's a great setup for uh, the way we look at the world. You have uh, supply that the current year supply less than consumption. And that's because the the price of the commodity went below the economic um, incentive price to produce the commodity. And so we just did more work from there. And the good news from an investor looking at that theme and that thesis today is that's still the case. So five years on, six years on, seven years on, the industry is still producing less than consumption. The price of uranium is still below the marginal cost of production. And we feel like uh, we're close to uh, the point where the commodity is in such short supply that you you get a dramatic spike because there's not enough of it.
1: Yeah, Chris, anything you'd add to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the big picture is that uh, supply is well short of demand right now. Demand is in the 195 million to 200 million pounds a year range and supply is in the 150 million pound a year range. So that is a, that is a huge gap. And we estimate that uh, from the time of uh, Fukushima in 2011 to the peak that uh, inventories had built up by about 150 million excess pounds from 2011 to 2017. Since that time, those inventories have all been worked off and we are now going into, eating into uh, a negative position on on the cumulative surplus deficit since Fukushima here right now. And so, you know, that's why we think this is very timely right now because all of that oversupply has been worked off and um, there are, the only the, new, the source of supply going forward is going to have to be new mines or restarts of old mines. And so uh, to make up that, that 50 million pound a year gap, 40, 50 million pound a year gap. And so um, you know, we're sort of right at the start of those things starting to happen, but that takes a long time in the nuclear industry and in the uranium industry. So.
1: Well, and, and I know you guys, one of the reasons that we think you guys are one of the best in this area is that you guys are so supply demand driven and count things and uh, it's math. I guess since the, we first met years ago, demand has changed, the demand picture has changed. So maybe we'll get into that in a little bit, but maybe uh, could you guys go through why, uh, why hasn't uranium stocks and uranium price rocketed up? Like what happens over the next 12 to 24 months?
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind taking that because I get that question a lot and I've gotten that question a lot over the last couple of years which I find, um, you know, I understand where it's coming from. But at the same time, the point of being an investor is to be invested, be in your positions prior to it being obvious to everybody else. So, but the fact is, we haven't seen that price spike that we would have expected uh, yet. And uh, I guess... Chris just alluded to the reason. I mean, we haven't really run out of inventory. The industry has a lot of slack built into it. There was excess inventory existing that needed to be worked down before the commodity would actually be in short supply. And that that took through 2022 and into 2023. And uh so so commodities, that's an on-off switch, really, in some ways. you either you either have enough or too much, or you don't have enough. And we still have to, we're still in the process of getting to the point where, where the industry participants, the one that matter, decide that there's not enough. And they're the ones that set, that will have to set the price. Um, or actually they will
3: be price takers at that point. Chris, so, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into contracting at this point, but I think that that's another piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, from from the time of Fukushima until 2021, the industry uh, contracted less than 100 million pounds a year, while demand was in the 180 million plus pound a year range. And so they're contracting at, say, 50% of end demand. Um, in 2022, for the first time in 10 years, contracting demand went above 100 million pounds, about 113 million pounds. And then in 2023, in the, just the first half, we've exceeded that and contracted 115, 120 million pounds in the first half of 2023. And so um, contracting is where the price gets set. And so I don't think it's surprising that uh, we've seen a, a pretty decent move in the uranium price this year as contracting has now moved to the levels that are, you know, if you annualize full year basis, you're going to be above demand for the first time in in uh 11 years and so that's where we see demand is happening for contracts and that's showing up in price pretty strongly uh this year and we expect that to continue going forward because the industry as I mentioned has under contracted for the last 10 years and so um they need to sign a lot of contracts here with the Iranian producers over the next couple years and so that's that should drive the price going
1: forward so it will become apparent to investors at that point when these contracts get reported right by these companies by the utilities
3: yeah i mean i think the contracting drives the price and so that starts to make things apparent to people um yeah
1: well I, i mean and further complicate things chris maybe you could just very briefly walk through what the nuclear uh or the uranium fuel cycle is because you know unlike natural gas or coal where you just it's a very simple supply demand situation there's a whole other angle to this uh, commodity and maybe you could walk through that very briefly
3: yeah, I guess uh, it's a multi-step process that you take uh, uranium from the ground uh, you turn it into yellow cake you convert it into a gas which is uf6 and then you enrich that gas in a centrifuges to create the final fuel that goes into the reactors, and um, that's a process that takes somewhere between uh, twelve to twenty-four months. And so, when we talk about this contracting, right now, the the utilities are going to be contracting for various parts of that supply chain for the next couple years. You know, they might be buying uranium now for for twenty twenty-five consumption. And so, the the supply demand pinch that we're talking about can show up at any time once people realize that that there's not enough supply of uranium there for, for say 2025. So I guess, I don't know if that was too brief, but- uh, Nope, it's
1: helpful. No, because I think it is a little more complicated. And so um, maybe we could shift a little bit to what is, um, Derek, could you go through with the industry leader in North America's Cameco and what they're doing? And maybe we could even incorporate a little bit on how the war in Ukraine has changed things, because Russia and Kazakhstan are also involved in this global supply chain. Um, and could you walk through that just a little bit? Because the U.S. uses more uranium than anyone else, um, and the biggest supplier is Cameco.
2: Yeah, that um, Cameco is—I I call Cameco the bell cow in the industry, particularly for the Western world. Um, it's been the—it's been a reliable supplier for the uranium industry for decades. And it has uh, it's been a tough decade for them because the price of the commodity has been so low. But they are, but I think they've established themselves as a, a well managed company. And one of the things they did for their own shareholders' benefits, but it benefited the entire industry, is shut in mine capacity in 2017. And so uh, that was that was a big deal and a very responsible. Act and they describe it as they'd rather leave the pounds in the ground to sell in the future at higher prices rather than produce the last several years and and be forced to sell at at uh, these these depressed prices. So, so you could tell I have a, a high degree of confidence and respect for that management team. Um, so. I guess there's a couple of issues there, though, that uh, you brought up. Let's talk about the United States first. The United States has been historically and still is the largest consumer of uranium in the world. And we used to produce 40 million pounds in the United States, and that basically dropped to nothing. So the United States is an importer of virtually 100 percent of their fuel needs to run their nuclear fuel uh, nuclear fleet. And then one data point that's important here that I didn't know until we got involved, the United States still generates around 18 19% of all electricity uh, from their nuclear power plants. And so it's while it hasn't been a growing industry in the United States for, for the last couple of decades, it's still really large and really important. So what does that mean? Uh, for, it means uh, Cameco has a very eager and willing buyer in U.S. utilities, but less than you would think because you brought up the geopolitics. Uh, The United States, actually, the United States utility industry became what I would describe as overly reliant on nuclear fuel supplies and services. Um, Maybe at this point, I'll turn it back to Chris. And Chris, you can describe what, what I mean by that.
3: Yeah, I guess. Um, so if you look at getting back to the fuel cycle a little bit, um, Russia has very high market share, global market share in, in a lot of that fuel cycle. Um, their market share in conversion is 30 percent plus and their market share in enrichment is actually north of 40 percent. And so um, U.S. and Europe are both still reliant on Russia for final fuel uh at about in the mid to high 20 percent range for both uh areas and so we're still hugely reliant on Russia for nuclear fuel and uh, um that's a big geopolitical risk and a big risk for utility buyers as they look at where their fuel is coming from in addition uh in recent years the U.S has gotten about you know let's say 30 percent of their uranium from Kazakhstan um, and so, Kazakhstan is the world's largest supplier of uranium, with about a forty percent market share of the mined uranium. And um, so, it's kind of hard to to not get fuel from there when you're when you're a huge buyer like the U.S. But uh, there's a lot of risk to that as well because all of Kazakh, almost all of Kazakhstan's exports go through go through Russia through the port of St. Petersburg. And so, again, if you're a utility buyer, you're buying your uranium from Kazakhstan, that has to make you a little nervous in terms of what's going on geopolitically uh, with Russia, with all the other uh, um, embargoes and things like that going on against Russia as a result of the war in Ukraine. Um, so that's part of it. And then, Darren, maybe if you want to talk about the uh, the um, what's happened to some of the things of the fuel cycle.
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I was eager to take the mic back because uh, I want to then take all that and put it in- into the context of why does that matter to investors? So Kazakhstan is a low cost producer, which is how they went from very low market share to almost 40% over the last uh, 15 years or so. Uh, so to the extent they can no longer gain share and potentially lose share globally, and they and definitely gonna lose share among Western utilities, that pushes the whole industry out on the cost curve. So if you're not getting your pounds from Kazakhstan and Kazatomprom where are you going to be getting them from and you that you'd be you have to come back to the west or or western friendly suppliers they might be based in Africa and that's clearly happening the US utilities have recognized that they don't want to be as reliant as they have been historically on Russia it could happen quickly due to legislation or even a decision by Russia to stop exporting these this nuclear fuel. But if it just happens organically, that's still wildly positive for our bull case because it, it shifts production to higher cost producers, which would be good for a long-term uh, price target.
1: Right. So, I mean, we have a supply picture that's tight. We have this geopolitical angle that probably further tightens things. Um, And then what about demand? I mean, what's so interesting, I think that people don't realize is that, I mean, the vast majority of our carbon free electricity is driven by nuclear. And uh, let's just say that again, for the people who are adherents to more of a green agenda, it's carbon free electricity generation. And you're seeing huge build outs, I think, in China and India, but maybe you could go through and, and what happened in Japan, obviously. So maybe you could walk through that a little bit.
2: Yeah, I'd be uh, I'll be happy to start. I, since we've been involved, the political the the politics surrounding nuclear power has changed dramatically, and you see that even in the United States, where plants that were scheduled to be shut down are have gotten extensions, and um, and you definitely see it in Europe, uh, where say the UK has embraced. Nuclear power in a way they haven't for decades. and and they're as of now, they're committed to open eight new new plants over the next decade. Um, uh, we didn't need any of that to happen. So what so th- I guess I'll add one more thing. And then five years ago, no one was talking about small modular reactors, which are basically between a tenth and a half the size of the big reactors that people think about when they think about nuclear power with the big uh, uh, cooling cooling uh, towers. So that's also, while it might be more than five years away before small modular reactors really get up and running in a big way, that there's still an incremental uh, source of demand over the next couple of decades. So the demand picture was good and very visible when we got involved, and it's gotten better. And the growth rate in demand is probably you know, potentially doubled from what we thought conservatively might be one and a half percent. It's probably going to be more like 3%, which uh, over a decade makes a big, you know, makes a big difference because it means that sometime in the early 2030s, we're going to need another 10 or 15 million pounds that we, no one really knows where that's going to come from. Well, it has come from a new mine, but there, but, but that's not in process yet.
1: Chris, it. do you have anything to add on the demand picture?
3: Yeah, I would just say, you know, I think there are about 430 reactors in operation today. There are about uh, 57 reactors under construction right now. So that's pretty good demand growth that we can see visible going forward over the next six, seven years. Um, And uh, in addition to that, we've seen a lot of uh, countries around the world that were scheduled to close nuclear reactors, extending the lives of those reactors by 10 and 20 years so that's additional demand that had been that that you know people had thought was going to go away but is actually now going to continue um and uh you know like darren said there's been a real sea change in the in the uh global view of nuclear power over the last several years even japan which shut down all of its reactors after fukushima and which you know that led to this bear the bear market they have now reopened 11 of their reactors and they are trying to open another 15 to 20 uh, over the next several years. Um, and so you know I think that's sort of the the poster child for the the change in view of uh, nuclear power over the last several years.
1: Yeah, before we got involved, I thought of the Simpsons and the three-eyed radiated irradiated fish, you know as a, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a starting point. So I understand, I've come a long way myself. Um, I think also, don't you think there longer term there could be some really interesting things that could play out too in that there obviously is a very strong electrification theme globally where, you know, we want to, we want to, the world wants to convert to EVs, you know, electric vehicles and the demand picture for electricity is very high, uh, through 2030, higher than Trent, than it's been trending in the past. And then you combine carbon free electricity generation, solar wind, which has been, I'd say, modestly disappointing, certainly in wind. Um, it could be a very interesting picture. I mean, I remember when the, uh, Department of Energy, some futurist there wrote a great paper about how you could fit an SMR, which you just mentioned, these small modular reactors inside an existing coal plant that already has transmission lines coming out of it. Right. So there there are a number of paths we could take, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I definitely can. I definitely expect to see that happen. I think the embrace of nuclear power is only going to increase. It's an elegant solution uh, like the example you just used you don't have to build a whole new infrastructure to replace fossil fuel uh, electricity generation and frankly you don't have to do complicated math you can do it on the back of an envelope to see that the electrification goals that most countries have embraced related to 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 uh, climate change can't be accomplished without nuclear I mean it's it's not even close and so you know you have to if even if you don't like nuclear, I'd say we'll pick your poison because there's no other way to do it. And if you really believe we're facing an existential threat, then you better uh you're gonna have to change your view of nuclear power.
3: There's an yeah. element
2: Oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris.
3: I was just gonna say that, you know, when you think about wind and solar, they have to be combined with base load power. And uh, you know, nuclear is is the only answer there that does not consume uh fossil fuels. So
1: well, maybe you know you could touch on a little bit about um, you know there's certainly a race going on, too where the u s. originated this. I mean, France probably has the deepest nuclear grid, right seventy percent or so of electricity generation. Yeah, but China has been taking a very strong lead and building reactors with lower costs. I mean, maybe you could talk and 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 they're pitching that in Africa right now. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the geopolitics of building more nuclear power capacity.
2: Yeah, I'd like to jump in right away because b- most of the people who uh, advocate for nuclear power do exactly what I just did and say, hey, it's related to climate change. I wouldn't ignore the energy security aspects of nuclear power. And I, that's originally why Japan embraced it. And uh, and it's my belief, or I would, I'd say, I guess it's just a guess that that's primarily what's driving China's... Uh, aggressive growth in their fleet as well. So so I don't that that's independent of climate change and I don't see any reason in this environment why that would change. Energy security is going to be at the top of every government's minds or should be uh, going forward. To the extent that they can be built cheaper, I think that's one of the exciting parts of small modular reactors and micro reactors is that they can be built in a factory and and in a modular—that's why it's part of the name, the modularity—and there will be a learning curve, and so potentially these units become very economical as a source of energy, and so versatile. I think of a, of the different sizes of reactors, the way people think about different sizes of uh, aircraft. You know, so there's there's city pairs that make sense for an eighty seat plane and their city Paris that makes sense for a 500 seat plane. Right. And so you put that. i read
1: read NASA's working on a a trash can sized reactor. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, certainly (laughs) there there are these technologies out there. How else are you going
2: to get to Mars?
3: Yeah. Uh, Just to talk about China for another minute. um, You know, China has 55 reactors right now. That's equal to France and uh, the U.S. has, uh, in the '90s, reactors, and so China has a plan to build ten reactors a year for the next fifteen years. Wow. Um, so that would give them two hundred domestic nuclear reactors, which would be two times the U.S. Uh, fleet. And in addition, I think they and Russia view this as a nice export industry, where if they can go into other countries and use their technological prowess to to build reactors, they can they can earn um, nice profits that they can bring back to 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 their own country so
1: it's a great point chris i mean actually i just thought about that you know because they have so much of the global emissions but this is their answer isn't it i mean because they have coal-fired power plants at the moment but they're building nuclear reactors
3: yeah definitely
1: so you know without giving away maybe your uh your your, the goods on what your uh you know the 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 secret sauce of of azarius maybe how how do how are you guys playing what are the best ways to maximize your return in the space What, how are you, how, what is your approach to doing that?
2: We've been relatively conservative in an opportunity that we thought had tremendous upside. So what do I mean by that? When we got involved, the price of the commodity was around 20 and we expected it to go to at least 65. That's, that was five years ago. And since then, we've revised our expectations and believe that the long-term clearing price, the marginal cost of production is probably closer to 80. If it becomes short and in supply, if, if in which we would guess, it'll go way below, or I'm sorry, way above the marginal cost of production. So I think of that as the beta of one. So if that's your commodity beta, would equities provide greater, greater beta to that? And so then you can work your way down from there. You have your established producers that um, should do well in a rising commodity price. Then you have your, uh, uh producers oh, that might have idled what's that chris
3: all right go ahead go ahead I apologize. Oh, sorry.
2: well that's okay uh every time you interrupt me you say something insightful so i don't mind um so i'll keep going though so then you have we there were companies out there that had idled capacity they so they were proven producers but they weren't they didn't produce here in these later stages of this bear market but they could bring their capacity back on and so we we like that type of setup and then you have developers where there's really no doubt that they have proven assets. You have a pretty good idea of how much it would cost to develop that their assets and bring it to market, and they can do it in a time frame that will catch this cycle. That they could actually put those pounds under contract in the what we expect to be a very multi-year strong contracting cycle. Beyond that, you could probably make more money if you could find the right explorers. Um, maybe more speculative developers with higher cost production make, maybe it'll take them longer. Those stocks might go up, but that's, they might go up even more than the stocks that we own, but, but we just feel that's too speculative and it's a risk that you don't have to take because you can make very attractive returns in these other situations we described. I guess the
3: one one thing I might add to that is that um, we've, Try to also be conservative geographically. Uh, I would say over ninety percent of the portfolio is invested in uh, North American producers, U.S. and Canadian producers and developers, and uh, so uh, we try to avoid some of the uh, the geopolitical risk. For example, we are not invested in Kazatomprom, the large the largest producer, uh, just because we thought that. We just wanted to stay away from that that potential uh, geopolitical situation there.
1: And it seems like there are a lot of smaller companies without really great businesses. I mean, that's, I think, you know, what I worry about is that this becomes a big, you know, retail area and people see the name nuclear or uranium attached to it and buy it. I mean, right there, there's many companies that you would avoid.
3: Yes, for sure. I mean, just as an example, when we started this, I think there were about 40, uh, you know, uranium mining companies. Some of those were already in that category that you talked about. Uh, at the peak in 2007, of the last cycle, there were over 400 companies that had uh, attached uranium to their name in one way or another. And so uh, yeah, you, there are a lot of a lot of um, people that have some land that may or may not have uranium uh, in it and and things like that. So yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies, managements consider their job uh, mostly to be a promoter that and raise capital. And we're looking for operators. We want the companies to, with management teams that really know how to get pounds out of the ground and make money f- uh, for shareholders.
1: Fair enough. I mean, one thing I want to go back to real quick is, um, you know, I think though maybe you guys could set the stage a little bit because we talked about global demand Um, but in the Western world, it's been, you know, we just had a very large nuclear power plant go live in the U S but maybe you could talk about why it's so hard for the U S to build these things. And I know there was a huge cost overrun in the one in, um,
3: in the South. Chris, you want to take that one? Um, yeah, well, I guess, you know, if you think about it, big picture, you know, we, we haven't, we didn't build, uh nuclear power plant for 30 years. And so uh, you lose a lot of the the workers have retired, you lose a lot of the know-how and the ability to do it. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why China has been able to do it more cheaply now, because they've been building five, six per year. And so I do think, you know, um, yes, there was a huge overrun at the, uh, at the power plant in Georgia there. Um, but I do think I do think the US will probably build uh nuclear power plants again and you have to you have to you know get it going you have to build you have to build build up the infrastructure to be able to build a power plant at a reasonable price and that so that that takes time uh you need the labor you need everything else so I I, I do think we will get there or if if we don't build big ones we will build small ones uh SMRs and so we will build up the uh industrial and technological infrastructure but it will take time
1: and is the Department of Energy generally on board that they want more nuclear or do they or is it, or are they or is it very very regulated and and makes it difficult
3: I mean my understanding is that they do want more I was at a recent conference a nuclear industry conference where a, a presenter from the Department of Energy specifically talked about the need for a lot of new nuclear power for the reasons we talked about before you need baseload power uh that is they want baseload power that uh, does not emit uh greenhouse gases and so i mean the numbers that they were talking about were very large um you know again uh, she did talk about all the things i just talked about though you need to build out a whole supply chain infrastructure to support that uh but my, my sense is that um both political parties now are are you know firmly behind nuclear power uh, and new nuclear power in the United States. Well,
0: yeah, we've
2: come question, full circle. Go ahead well, oh, I, I just wanted to maybe it's repetitive, but we've come full circle on the uh, on the politics of it. I mean, it's one of the few bipartisan issues as of right now. Now the motivations of each party might be different, but the end result is a lot of political support for nuclear power. And the other encouraging aspect of this is that the the younger the demographic, the more they support nuclear power. So the old, you know, Jane Fonda demographic is becoming less and less influential on the, on the actual outcome. Right. We
1: certainly life. certainly saw that in Diablo Canyon in California. Right. I mean,
2: yeah. Very, oh, very and by young. the way. You know, I, I named Jane Fonda, so I should at least uh, go ahead and follow up. And, and shockingly, she has come around. She said temporarily, kind of like Greta Thunberg, you know, it's, they, both of those uh, women have changed their tune on nuclear power, uh, driven by their concerns about climate change. So, I mean, as a child of the 70s and 80s, it's really been quite shocking.
1: It's extraordinary. Um, it, it, maybe the last thing is, uh, because I get this question quite a bit, is why then an industrialist co- a country like Germany would shut their last nuclear power plants? And they, uh, just to remind people that after Fukushima, they made that announcement and they finally shut the last one, the last three, actually, just recently.
2: He, the, uh, the cynical answer might uh, involve following the money you can go cycling but, <laughs> but i'm not an expert on that but uh, but they do have some politicians that have sat on boards of russian entities that make you wonder what their motives might have been so that's probably as far as i should go at with that without being more well versed in the facts but,
1: but in general though they they think that it could be a wind and solar future basically because they're they're
2: definitely not pro coal either yeah, if you want to be generous, it's just a naive, it's just a naive energy policy that that led them to this point, and and the politics of it have been good. I mean, this is they they the up until recently, this is what their society wanted, and so they're going to get it good and hard, as someone once said.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, they they as a result of Fukushima, Merkel announced that they were going to shut down their all their plants. They shut down eight of the seventeen fairly quickly by August of 2011, and the other nine have, have been shut down over the last 10 years. Um, but, you know, a side effect of that was they're now burning a lot more coal, they're emitting more greenhouse gases, and their price, their energy costs have soared. And so I do think that's actually a factor that is contributing to other countries looking at that and saying, okay, we, we don't want to shut down our existing plants. We want to extend the lives of those. We want to actually invest in new plants because if you do that here's what happens <laughs> you actually burn more greenhouse gases and your energy costs uh, uh, go up by huge factors so uh, i think germany you know has been a sort of a, a good test case for for what happens if you do shut down your nuclear reactors without without a, any without a backup plan um, and so you know i think it's it, it's been a mistake for them and you know they're going to have another winter where Russian gas is going to be short, not coming into their country and their power costs are going to be very high again this winter, I would guess. So, um, I think it's cautionary tale for, for people who, who look at that and say, you know, uh, what were they thinking Yeah, later? yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's an amazing topic, I think. And, uh, investors are coming around to it. I think, you know, this could be a really interesting area over the next five years and, um, You guys are pros in it so i appreciate uh darren and chris at azarius thank you very much for your time and uh appreciate it
0: you're welcome it's great to talk to you thank you thank you karen appreciate it thank you for listening to the thematic investors podcast powered by vidrio financial with vidrio financial Asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Kieran Cavada. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.